Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Hey folks, let's get started the right way by cranking up part two of Perishables, The College Town. This part is based on a real college town. Uh, all the locations in the Withrow Chronicles are real locations. The house the Withrow lives in in part one is a house that I house sat for in North Raleigh in the early 1990s one summer when I was teaching at a summer program and the people who lived there were gone for the summer. That neighborhood, I've changed the name of the neighborhood and changed the names of the streets, but it's similar in theme. And they lived in this like big, ridiculous house and they had a mother-in-law suite in their basement and that's where I lived. And so I like lived in the basement of this enormous house in the suburbs and somebody else came and mowed the lawn and everybody in the neighborhood looked at me like I was a weirdo because they didn't know who I was. And I just sort of hid from the sun in these people's basement and eventually used it in a vampire novel. So in part two, the college town, in the book, the town is referred to as Mount Aries which is, in fact, an analog for Mars Hill, which is just outside of Asheville. And, well, my commentary will speak for itself in the form of the story. That's what I shall say. So let's get right into part two, The College Town. I am so excited to read this. I love this character. My boyfriend told me that moving to Mount Aries was going to be a mistake I would rue. Can you believe that? Nobody says Rue. Nobody but characters played by Jeremy Irons. That's what I told him, too, when he said that. I threw back my head and laughed at him and told him he was being stupid. I knew he was right, though. I knew I would hate living full-time in a do-nothing little town like that, so... I didn't. Instead, I kept my rat trap in Asheville and did a lot of commuting to Mount Aries, 45 minutes straight up the side of a mountain. I made for some wonky hours, some really early mornings I didn't enjoy, but it meant I got to have a life. If I'd actually gone and lived up there, I'd have been schlepping it up and down that mountain every Friday night. Every time I went to the mall, every time I wanted to get a cup of coffee that didn't have a fast food logo on the side. And I knew myself better than that. Still, there were times when I just didn't have it in me to go back home after the day. And so I'd shut myself in my office and curl up on a futon mattress I had folded up between two filing cabinets. And I'd sleep on an airplane pillow with an old quilt over me. On those mornings, I woke up there. I could just hoof it up to the gym early and catch a shower and change in the spare clothes I kept in my office. I'd get breakfast in the cafeteria and enjoy the extra hour or so that would buy me. My name is Jennifer McCordy. I'm a big iron system administrator, mainframe computers, old table-sized boxes that can do the heavy lifting for a large organization's back-end computing. I majored in comp size and undergraduate and thought I would just renew my lease and glide right into their graduate program, but no such luck. They turned me down. Well, to be precise, I got waitlisted, which is as good as getting turned down. 
My backup was UNC Asheville, so that's where I went. It beat spending a year slinging ice cream with my fingers crossed. Asheville had great big old... God. Asheville had great big mainframes, old VAC systems no one else was running. I did my dissertation on the modern workforce's inability to cope with older technologies. That's what Y2K was all about. Old COBOL programmers got called out of retirement left and right because they were the only ones around who knew how to fix all the old systems sitting around in aging coal plants and places like that. All the newly minted doctoral candidates in the world couldn't have solved that problem. It took a bunch of Santa Claus lookalikes and matching plaid suspenders to put the kibosh on the fall of Western civilization. My UNCA profs loved it. I might as well have written them a 300-page love letter. That wasn't what I meant to do. I wasn't angling for the sycophant's diploma, but it didn't hurt. After that, even though Tim encouraged me to go get my PhD and become a professor... How many women like you, he asked, had no good role models in the sciences, in math, in computer science especially? And I agreed, but I was also pretty tired of school by then. I decided to go get some live fire experience. I figured it could only help my chances of getting into a good doctoral program if I had a few years of real system administration under my belt, something done out in the real world. So I started casting around for big iron jobs in Asheville because I'd really grown to love that slice of mountain paradise. I thought I'd have an advantage there, in fact, because of the lack of a high-tech industrial base. Asheville's economy is tourism and a few manufacturing plants slowly draining away to somewhere else. Landing a job nurturing some computer the size of a Cadillac and older than I was would be a piece of cake. The only real nibble I got, it turned out, was from Mount Aries Baptist College. They didn't have a computer science program, but they did have a few old IBMs in their machine room under the math building. Tim rolled his eyes. They're never going to respect you at a place with Baptist in the name, he said. They're probably going to give you the hairy eyeball for not walking two paces behind any men who happen to be around. He called it Mount Airy's Burka College. I don't want to give you the wrong impression about Tim. He's a good guy. I guess I love him, but to be honest, I wouldn't throw myself off any bridges if he died tomorrow. That's not how I'm wired. He's followed me around through one academic program to another, though, and he never criticized what I was doing. He just seemed to want me to be happy, and you don't find that every day. I took the job, and he never said another bad word about the place. I'd made up my mind, and he respected that. Discussion over. Tim's that way. If he doesn't like something, he'll say so, and when he figures out that it didn't convince you, he'll shut the hell up. When I took the job at Mount Aries, it was August. The last admin had retired in May. The systems they had going up there could basically run on autopilot for weeks at a time, no problem. They were Cold War-era systems that had been designed to keep the numbers crunched even if the Reds dropped the big one right on Washington. There was a real sense of that up in Mount Aries, that idea that they were continually holding the line against some outsider culture determined to stamp them out. They hadn't replaced the systems they had, even though they could afford to, because they'd, quote, always worked just fine, end quote. And I found out later they'd hired me in part because of my dissertation, Legacy, High-Performance Computing, and Media Survivability. My first day was the week before the fall session began, and my boss, J. Harley Boquest, I kid you not, showed me down to my new digs. His title was Dean of Information Management. What that means is that he was an accountant from the 60s. He attended Mount Aries just in time to watch Flower Plow... Excuse me. He attended Mount Aries just in time to watch flower power bloom on television, and I guess it scared him. He never left. He hired on that summer as a bookkeeper in the finance department instead, and climbed the ladder one decade at a time. He had a habit of talking about his childhood home in Kentucky as though it were a Boy Scout camp that never ended. Maybe it was, but I didn't really care. 
He's a nice guy. It's just, well, I'm not into standing around reminiscing. Anyway, he showed me around. He showed me down to my office. It was in the basement of the math building. We went down the front steps and cut around behind them and down another set of stairs. At the bottom of those, there was a big double door, wooden, oversized, big enough to drive a VW van through, with a huge sign on each so that you could read the message, even if one of the doors were propped open. Non-academic. Beyond them, there was a hallway of plain, institutional, puke-green cinder blocks and a beige tile floor, the kind flecked with darker spots so you won't notice if it gets dirty. There were no doors along the first half of the hall, creating a sense we were moving deeper than we were, deep into the bowels of the building, out of the campus you'd find represented on a visitor map and into some secret cavernous complex beyond that. For all I knew, we were. There were weathered, faded metallic signs here and there down there, with the standard radiation symbol and fallout shelter written on them in block letters. After a few yards, or maybe miles, of green cinder block, there was a double window, the right-hand pane of which slid back so you could speak to an attendant on the other side. There wasn't an attendant anymore, but there used to be back when that was where the printer lived. Note the singular there. The printer. The glass was double thickness with wire mesh embedded in it. I don't know who they thought would rob this place, but it was bulletproof all the same. Finally, past that and around the corner, there were the double doors into the machine room. There was a big red high-voltage sign with little cartoon lightning bolts all around it and a stick figure guy dying horribly in each corner. Fun. Jay Harley showed me the punch code, 1234, I regret to inform you, and walked me back between a potpourri of different models of mainframes and databanks like mismatched Lego bricks stacked in neat rows. In the back corner was a little door with no window, and in there, a small room with two filing cabinets, a plain wooden desk, a chair, and no external view. It had fluorescent lights and all the charm of a converted closet, because that's what it was. Harley swept his arm inside and said, You're new home away from home. I know it's not much, but there's a powder room at the other end of the hall. Not a lot of competition down here for access to the ladies. Then he laughed his snorty little laugh and said he'd ordered a new nameplate and a desktop computer would be delivered next week and walked away. Jay Harley doesn't know a lot about computers and didn't like that they'd brought in an outsider. If Jay Harley had gotten his way, they'd have retained a portion of every class as breeding stock and then eventually they'd staff the place with a bunch of guild natives of Innsmouth. I spent the next week looking over the old wiring diagrams, such as they were, and figuring out where the hell everything was. My computer arrived a week after he'd said it would, but I had plenty to keep me busy in the meantime. J. Harley Boquest was barely speaking to me, and no one else in the department seemed to know what, how to talk to a woman, so I didn't make a lot of new friends. I used that time to poke around campus a little, check out the lay of the land, and make a friend somewhere else. Everett Plank, Associate Professor of Biology. He called himself Underchair for Creation Science when he was feeling bitter about his job, but that wasn't often. I liked Everett. Everett was a good guy. We spent the academic year buddying around campus. I think Tim was jealous at first, but then they met and even Tim's gaydar couldn't fail to pick up the beacon in the night that is Everett when he broadcasts the Inner Queen. That first year at Mount Aries wasn't easy. There were staff members who found me lacking in any number of ways. Too female. Too young. Too non-academic. Jay Harley turned out to be a nice enough boss, if a little weird sometimes, once he got used to having me around. He had an odd sense of humor and these horn-rimmed glasses that were so thick they made it actually impossible to look him in the eyes. 
He would tell jokes about communists, and Everett would say they were coded anti-Semitic remarks, and I'd think to myself that they'd both been there so long they'd gotten decoupled from the rest of the world. Everett at least went down to Asheville to go dancing sometimes. He made it a lot easier on me, though, while I adjusted. We had lunch together most days, and sometimes dinner, too. This cool cafeteria was uninspired, to say the least, but I'd rather have bland casserole with someone who makes me laugh than three lonely squares in isolation. The Marianne McCullough Memorial Cafeteria was a dreadfully typically school, typical school cafeteria, exactly how you picture it, even though I haven't mentioned the drab brown carpet, an ascetic sixteenth inch of an inch in thickness, the iceberg lettuce on the salad bar, the malevolent main courses, or the cashiers who sighed heavily whenever someone tried to pay with something other than an easy swipe of their meal card. The food was unbelievably bad, embarrassingly bad, and one time I realized as I was reaching for it that the bread pudding was made out of disemboweled Twinkies. Like, someone in that kitchen thought that was okay. The Mac was where nutrition went to die. The one nod to luxury or the modern era in the cafeteria was the bank of TVs in the quarters, three each. One was always on the Weather Channel, one was always on ESPN, and one was always on Fox News. Sometimes someone would get a couple of friends and try to form a human pyramid to change the channels, only to have a cashier come squalling out at them and chase them off before they succeeded. Everett would stare at the middle one, Fox News, and sigh every four minutes. Then he'd joke that Bill O'Reilly was the best diet he'd tried yet as he pushed his plate away and draped a napkin across it. Why do you do that? I asked the first time he did it. Dead food, he intoned very seriously, is gross. Well, that's the beginning of part two, the college town of perishables. Thanks for joining me. I will talk to you tomorrow night. See you then. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution license at ccmixter.org.